like combinations of people living together. And this month last year, CBC News carried a story with the headlines, quote, nearly 70% of university students battle loneliness during the school year, survey says. And then the subheading, National Survey found students felt very lonely and so depressed that it was difficult to function. I guess this report shouldn't come as a surprise to us. We are living in a, an increasingly disconnected and isolated world. And the church hasn't fared better. We have people who serial date the church, not staying in one place very long, or they may come to church but choose to stay on in the margins, coming to church only when something better isn't going on, happy to be anonymous in the congregation. And even those who come, many don't know anyone else in the church, and they certainly don't depend on the church when they're struggling. We choose to wear a mask instead, pretending everything's okay, even when they're not. Disconnectedness, isolation. That was never God's design for His people. We were made for community. We need community. We are transformed in community. This morning's sermon will be slightly different. Instead of a book study, carry on with Galatians, we will look at a theme in the Bible. Specifically, we will be looking at what God has to say about community. And let me tell you where our sermon is heading this morning. We know there's an increase uh, disconnectedness and isolation in our society today. I want to make clear that that's not what God had in mind for humans when He created us. Rather, living in community is what God wants. And I want to show you this by pointing out where in the Bible we can see this most clearly. So don't just think it's, it's, it's Roger's idea because he's a kind of sociable kind of guy. You know, he likes community. That's not just my idea. And I'll explain why being in community is a big deal for God and why it should be a big deal for us. And lastly, I want to show how we at Christ the King want to encourage and facilitate the sense of community within our congregation. Okay? Okay, let's press on. At Christ the King, we affirm each week with Christians through the centuries our Christian beliefs. We do that, for instance, by when, every time we read the Nicene Creed. And we just read it a moment ago. And this is a statement of our Christian faith crafted some 1,700 years ago. It summarizes core doctrines that Christians have believed through the centuries. And one of these is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity states that our God is one God eternally existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, even before the start of time, our God existed in community, in perfect, loving harmony between God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you want to have a glimpse of what this relationship within the Trinitarian community looks like, look at Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 when I get home uh, this afternoon. So when we read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, you need to know the context. It means that we humans are made in the image of a Trinitarian God. And the implication of that, amongst other things, is that we were made for community. And God didn't just make humans for Himself, for community with Him. He made humans for community with one another. 
And we see this in the very next chapter in Genesis 2, 2.18. We're told, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Up to this verse, everything that God created, we're told God saw that it was good. This is the very first instance that God said something was not good. And it's the fact that man was alone. God made humans to be in community with one another as well. And that's why we naturally feel the need for relationships, for community. And that's why there's despair in our disconnectedness, in our isolation. We sense we're missing something because we are. We are missing community. And we see God's design not just in creation. We see this in God's establishing the nation of Israel as well. When they were in the wilderness, God said to Moses in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, I will make your, my dwelling among you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. That's a God who wants to be in community with his people. Dwelling with them, walking with them. And the Israelites, they were to be his people, living together, and to worship God together as a redeemed community. And it's not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John introduces Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, we have the picture of God dwelling among His people in community through the birth and the life of Jesus. And Jesus came and He established a community of 12 disciples. People who, I must add, don't naturally come together on their own. You know, disciples, uh, Peter and Andrew, John and James, they're all fishermen. They don't want to hang out with the disciple Matthew, the tax collector. Who, what does he do? He collects taxes from fishermen each time they bring their haul in. And they certainly don't want to hang around Judas, whom they knew was a thief, and who stole from the money back from time to time. And it's not just the gospel. In Paul's letter as well, we see many references to the church as a body, pointing to its unity in the midst of its diversity. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 8. For those who are smaller print Bible, it's 552, 552, and the larger print Bible, it's uh, 1049, 1049, 1049. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 8. Let me read. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Look at verse 5 again. Can you see that? We are one body in Christ, one community. And as the NIV version puts it, each member belongs to one or the other. Each member belongs to all the other. We belong to one another and we are to use our different gifts to serve one another. So he says all over the Bible, this idea of community. The Bible usually does not address the individual Christians. In fact, the term individual Christian would have been an oxymoron. 
We're not helped by the English language, unfortunately. You see, there isn't a plural for the pronoun you. So every time we read in one of Paul's letters a sentence with you, we think so, it's a singular you. I think it's addressing me. It's all about me. Right? But those of us who know Greek, those who read the Bible in Chinese or Japanese, for instance, you will know that the vast majority of the you that you see in Paul's letter are plural yous, always addressed to a group of Christians or to a church. You see, in God's scheme of things, the individual identity is very much bound up with the community. As the author Paul Tripp writes, we weren't created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. We were made to live in a humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God, and in a loving and humble interdependency with others. Our lives were designed to be community projects. And yet the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all that we need within ourselves. So we settle for relationships that never go beneath the casual. No, no surprise, isn't it? Why so many people end up disconnected and isolated today? But why, you may ask, why a community, why did our triune God in His wisdom build into our DNA a yearning and a need for community? Well, the answer to that can be found in the verses that were just read for us by Alex. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. Page 525 in the smaller print Bibles and uh, 998 in the larger print Bibles. 525 in the smaller print and 998 in the larger print. John 13, verses 31 to 35. Well, first the context. This was the last supper that Jesus would have with his disciples, his newly gathered messianic community. He would be betrayed and arrested after this. And at the start of chapter 13, if you look at that, uh, you read about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And as you come down to verse 31, we start off with the words, when he had gone out, he as in Judas, the one who's going to betray Jesus. So after literally and figuratively cleansing this new messianic community, Jesus gives them his final instructions. He tells them what he would like to do, like them to do when he's gone. And our passage this morning contains what Jesus calls his new commandment. Let me read from verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved for one another. From this passage, we can see two reasons why community is necessary. Firstly, community is necessary for our sanctification. Sanctification. Okay, I'm going to test you now to see how much you pay attention when Keith preaches each week, okay? Three weeks ago, when Keith was preaching from Galatians 4, he said, and I won't try to imitate him, okay, but this is what he said. That's what Paul wants, and that's what I want as your pastor. And I can tell you with certainty that's what your bishop wants too. And above all other things, above bigger services on Sunday, or more money, or planting lots of churches in a denomination, or success defined in whatever metrics it's commonly used these days, 
in the church planting world, or even in the world more broadly. Give it all up. Because it's all about one thing, or we're missing the point. Now, here's a question for you. Do you remember what's that one thing? That one thing that Keith mentioned? Anybody at all? Yes, Jesse. You got one word right. <laughs> you got one word right. Sorry, nobody in the first service knew it either, so <laughs> that's why I give handouts. But let's watch that one thing. Christ formed in you. It's from Galatians 4:19. Christ formed in you. That's what Keith wants from all of you. That's what the bishop wants from all of you. That's what the apostle Paul wants from all of you. Christ formed in us. Now, what does that mean? It means all of us growing more and more like Christ each day, becoming more and more like Jesus in the way we think, the way we behave, the way we speak. And here in John 13, in his last instructions to his disciples, he tells them, love one another just as I have loved you. If you want to be more and more like me, Jesus is saying, then love like me. You know what's the true measure of spiritual growth? That's not how much knowledge you've gained in the past year. That's important, especially if it's Bible knowledge. But that's not the true measure. The true measure is not measured in knowledge, but in conformity. It's Christ form more and more in you? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus? That's the true measure. Now let's pause for a moment. Ask yourself, compared to a year ago, have you become more and more like Christ this past year? Are you more loving? Have you become more joyful in the Lord? Are you experiencing greater peace? Or are you just as easily anxious? Are you more and more like Christ this year? And this is what's new about this commandment. You see, in the Old Testament, we already have a commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. You find it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, right? But Jesus is now setting the bar higher. The new standard is now to love one another. That is, remember the context? He's talking to his 12 disciples, the Messianic community. The new standard is now to love one another. That is to love God's people just as Jesus did. And we know how much Jesus loved us. And please note, Jesus is not saying here that Christians are to love the world less. But rather, he's saying that we are to love one another, fellow Christians more. So how are we to love one another? Well, we see lots of ways in the New Testament. In fact, I've compiled a list uh, of them. I call it the one anothering list. You'll find it in your sermon uh, 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 bulletin today. It's called a one anothering list. That's a pretty long list, isn't it? So please take it home, put it on a fridge or something, and each time you cook, look at it, <laughs> keep working on it, and you'll be more and more like Jesus, and Keith will be proud of you. The process of working at each one of these uh, uh, items in the list, love one another, honor one another, and so on, 
is a very important part of what we call sanctification. Have you noticed how each one of them can only be worked on in a community? You can be very patient as long as no one is in your way. You can control your anger as long as no one is around to irritate you. It's easy not to envy when there's no one else to compare with. You see, we're all saints in isolation. And it's in community that our real witnesses, our sins, are exposed. That's why community is essential and not optional for our transformation. Community provides us with the context for us to be trained in how we can love one another as Christ loved us. I like the way someone puts it. We sometimes treat community like the safety net under a tightrope walker. It's a good thing to have in case something bad happens. But the Bible talks about community as if it's the tightrope itself. You can't move forward without it. We are created for community. We are redeemed for community. And we are transformed in community. Community is necessary for our sanctification. Secondly, community is necessary for apologetics. What is apologetics? Apologetics is defending. This is the sophisticated definition. Apologetics is defending or proving the truth of religious doctrines through systematic argumentation and discourse. Let me give you a simple one. It's the response you're giving to someone who asks you, how can I know that Christianity is true? That's apologetics. The response that you're giving to someone who asks you, how can I know that Christianity is true? So when I say that community is necessary for apologetics, what I'm basically saying is this. If your friend tomorrow, when you go back to work or school or whatever it is, and they ask you, how can I know that Christianity is true? Your answer should be, come, take a look at my church. Come, take a look at my church. Because this is what Jesus tells us. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, loved, you have love for one another. So I'm hoping that your friends will take up your offer and visit our church. And when they do, they'll be convinced that Christianity is true. How so? Because they come and they enjoy the wonderful lunch after service that uh, Philip serves? Because they like the songs that we sing? Or maybe they think it's rather cool that we meet in a tea shop? Well, I hope all this is true. But these are not the reasons why I like your friends to believe Christianity is true. Rather, I like your friends to come to our church and first of all, be amazed at the truth and the grace of the gospel that's been preached each week. And secondly, more importantly, that this gospel has been lived out in front of them. I like your friends to be amazed that in the midst of an increasingly disconnected, divided and isolated world, they see a community of people who are genuinely happy to be together, demonstrating care for one another, providing encouragement and support for each other, enjoying just being together. In short, loving one another just as Christ loved us. And best of all, I hope your friends will notice that many of us here don't share the characteristics that the world consider necessary to bring people together. You know what I'm talking about. Characteristics like your age, the color of your skin, 
our economic and social status, our educational qualifications, our jobs, our hobbies, and so on. The usual things that bring people together. I'd like your friends to see that despite our differences, despite the fact that we don't share many of these things, how genuinely we love one another and how wonderfully attractive we are relationally. I hope we'll be the community that reveals the gospel in this way. And your friends will believe the gospel because they've seen the difference with their own eyes. They've seen it lift out in each one of us. That was exactly how an African friend of mine became a Christian. He was studying at university some years after the Rwanda genocide. As you know, this was the result of a conflict between two ethnic groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Many, many died. In fact, at the height of the conflict, 800,000 people were slaughtered within a 100-day period. You can imagine how much the Hutus and the Tutsis hated one another, except in this Christian fellowship group in the university he was in. In this Christian fellowship group, the Hutus and the Tutsis continued to love one another, encouraged one another, and supported one another. For my friend, it spoke volumes, and he believed. Community is necessary for our apologetics. So how do we actually do it? How can we build a community that's characterized by such relationships? At Christ the King, there are several ways that we hope to do this. Preaching is important. We need to be sure that we are rightly taught and the gospel rightly proclaimed each week. Praying is important. Oh, how we know we need the Holy Spirit to transform us to be more and more like Christ. But if we're ever going to love one another as Christ loved us, I think it's important that we first know one another. Who we are, how we're doing, what we're going through, what are our hopes, our fears, our challenges in life. And hear me out here. Frankly, the 10 minutes that we're going to get to interact with one another just before service starts, or the 10 or 20 minutes after service ends, it's just not going to do it. It's just not going to cut it. That superficial, hi, how are you doing this week? Fine. And you? That sort of conversation just isn't going to be enough. Coming for public worship at Christ the King and going home for your private devotions just won't be enough to build the sort of relationship we're talking about. Don't get me wrong, all these are good things. But as the mathematicians among you would know, they are necessary but not sufficient. Necessary but not sufficient. So at Christ the King, we want to be able to facilitate the opportunities for each one of us to know one another better. And we want to do this through the small groups. I want to say at the outset that small groups are not a panacea. They're just one piece of a big jigsaw puzzle, but they're a good start. I know some of us here may come from different church backgrounds, some churches that never had small groups before. Or perhaps some of us have been disappointed with the small groups we've been to in the past. Can I encourage you to put it all behind you? Let's draw a line in the sand and start again. Because I want you to look at small groups now with a new pair of glasses or contact lenses. Right? Can you see how small groups are there for your sanctification? 
It's not just another club. It's about how you and other members are being formed more and more in Christ. Can you see how small groups are there for your apologetics? It's not about you. It's about how you are revealing the gospel for others. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24-25, we read, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, obviously, if the church, even in Paul's time, there were people who had stopped coming or stopped meeting. Can I appeal to all of us here? Let us not be one of those. So be part of a small group in Christ the King this year. And when you are part of a small group, make a commitment to stick with it, to pray for it, to participate in it, to get to know the members beyond a superficial level, to serve the members in the group, to love them as Christ loved you. And if your small group isn't perfect, if it is messy, think of the messiness as an opportunity for sanctification, your sanctification. So the messier, the more opportunities. <laughs> Let me conclude. Community is God's design for humans, especially for His people. It is a necessity for Christians, not an add-on. We need it for our sanctification and our apologetics. Our application for this morning's sermon is simple. After service, take out your pen. And if you don't have one, we've got pens on the table. Take out the small group form in your bulletin and start filling it out. And after you've done it, put it in this wicker basket. Okay? As you, as you file out. And this week, as you reflect on the sermon, pray that God will put you in a small group where you will have the opportunity for sanctification. Pray also that your small group will become a winsome apologetic to the people who are asking how do I know that Christianity is real? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.